And I have a confession to make before I even get into the sermon, before I even start looking at my notes. It's interesting how God does what he does in us. And while we were worshiping, I want, I want to show you what my act of worship looked like today. I just want to show you. You ready? And this is hard for me to some degree. This is what my act of worship looked like today, physically. Who ever had the queen speech as a kid? The queen speech is that speech that someone in church gives you when you have your hands in their pockets or you're sitting down during worship and they go, if the queen was here, is that how you would act? Right? Who's ever had that speech before? I had that speech. Absolutely, I had that speech. Now that I'm older and much wiser, I have a greater rebuttal because to compare the queen to God just doesn't work. Because the queen isn't with me in the bathroom. But God is. Right? I mean, it doesn't work. My act of worship today was to put my hands in my pockets during worship because I learned, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I had this judgment of people that would have their hands in their pockets during worship. Because one time, way back in the day, when I was a kid, someone told me, that theologically it was wrong to have your hands in your pockets while you're worshiping God. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. So my act of worship today was having my hands in my pockets. And it was actually hard for me to do. It was, it was because all I could think of is there's people judging me right now. That's all I could think. Let's get into the sermon. You're going to see why that's so significant to me. It was about three years ago, we went to our uh, general conference. I went with, with uh, my father-in-law. We kind of bunked together for general conferences in Montreal. Oh, what a beautiful city. What good food. That whole city is nothing but like cafes, restaurants, and brownstones. Like that entire city. And then just history, history, history. And while we were there, at the end of the conference, um, my mother-in-law joined us, and so there's just the three of us, and we took a couple days at the end of the conference just to explore the city, because we had to go find the good smoked meat, and we had to go find the bagel place, and we had to, you know, check these things out. So one day, it was actually our first day, our first morning, we jumped on the bus, it was a beautiful sunny day, and we headed off to St. Joseph's Oratory of Mount Royal. Who's ever been there before? Who's ever been there? I got some pictures up here. This is St. Joseph's. And it was magnificent. You pull up to this place and you get up and it's on the top of Mount Royal. And so it's elevated up above. You got a beautiful view. And the way that they built these buildings back in the day is they purposefully put them on high places and they made them ridiculously huge. Because the, the idea was that our buildings need to, need to be a metaphor for the glory and the awesomeness of God. Okay, this was the idea in their architecture and their structures and what they did. Now, I don't know if you can notice, but the picture where I'm standing there, you can see three sets of stairs going up the hill. You see that? That middle set of stairs are made of wood. They're made of wood. And here's what was interesting. Because I had heard about this. I had heard about this. But I'd never really witnessed it before. And so as we were coming up and as we were walking up to these stairs... There was a family of people, there's about four of them, 
And they were, right, climbing the wooden stairs on their hands and knees. And every step they would stop and they would say the Lord's Prayer and a rosary prayer, right? And these people, we went in, we did our tour, we checked it out, it was beautiful. And we came out, and by the time we came out, the people were at the top of the stairs. And, and I remember in that moment thinking two thoughts. The first thought was this, wow, what dedication. What dedication to their understanding of the Christian faith. Followed very quickly by my second thought, what a useless exercise. What a useless exercise. It adds no value to their faith journey. We're going we're to discover, Paul, Paul actually says it actually cheats you. It actually cheats you in your faith journey. And we're going to just walk through this a little bit and unpack this. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, I want to ask you a question. Do we do the same thing? Do we do the same thing? I would argue that we do. I would argue that we absolutely, we impose additions to salvation. Whether we, whether we mean to or not, whether that, whether that, 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 that old saint that probably meant really well, that gave me the queen's speech, meant to or not, she imposed a theological understanding of worship upon me as a young man. Whether, whether she meant to or not, there was, there was an imposition of something that was extra biblical that was put in addition to my faith. I think we do it all the time. Pastor Lisa talked about it last week. We, we get caught up with presenting a certain image on the outside. That's what circumcision was all about. That's why they talked about circumcision, because it was the outward appearance, the outward sign and mark that you were inwardly a Jew, that you were inwardly associated to the people of God. It was all about the outside. And the certain image on the outside begins to stunt our spiritual growth where it really matters, where it really matters in our soul and in our heart. Our faith journey can become more about the idol and I'm, I'm using this word purposefully, okay? The faith journey can be, become more and more about the idol of behavior modification than growing in relationship with Jesus. That's what our faith journey can become. So here's the question we need to wrestle with with moving forward. I'm going to ask this question a number of times today. The question is this. Does the way you live your life define your relationship with Jesus or does your relationship with Jesus define the way you live your life? Because there's a profound difference between those two. I would argue that the latter is life-changing. It's sustainable and it grows exponentially and the former leads to brokenness. It leads to legality. And it leads to letting you down and letting those around you down. And that's where we really want to be careful, letting those around you down. And we're going to explore this a little more coming up. But first, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come. And when I say the Holy Spirit to come, I don't mean come here because he's here. He came with you. 
As we gather together, he's here. But sometimes we need, to, we need to position ourselves and invite the Holy Spirit in those places of our soul that need change, that need to grow, that need to mature. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come into our soul, into our heart, into our mind, into our understanding, and that you would teach us something about Jesus, that you would teach us something about grace and mercy and love, that you would teach us something deep within our hearts, that you would change, Lord God, the trajectory and the outcome of our lives and our journey for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to start verse 16. Colossians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let's look back really quickly. Um, Paul has been course correcting the church of Colossae over the course of the first two chapters and convincing them that Jesus is God, that Jesus is our source, and that to know Jesus is to deeply know the why of our lives. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said to know Jesus is to know. To know Jesus is to know. And today, we're going to explore the progression of these truths And if you're taking notes, write this down. Knowing Jesus changes everything. You've heard it many times here before, and I'll keep saying it many times in the years to come. Knowing Jesus changes everything. In other words, to pursue knowing Jesus, to pursue relationship, intimacy with Jesus becomes the catalyst for changing the way you live your life. Changing your Monday to Saturday between Sunday. Changing the way you do things when no one is looking. Changing the way that you have relationship with people. Knowing Jesus changes everything. So let's start verse 16 of Colossians chapter 2. It says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We're going to talk about that word. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not use, do not put your hands in your pockets. Referring to things that that all perish as they have been used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value to behavior modification. They have no value to changing the way you live your life in the day-to-day. Just before 
Paul writes this. He, he, he writes in, in verses 14 to 15, reminding the church that Jesus took captive the forces of evil. He says this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul is referring to the demonic, the satanic influences and the authorities of this world. The enemy that brings condemnation and guilt and shame against us as a weapon. So essentially, going into verse 16, he says, If Jesus overcame them very publicly, if he overcame them, then why do you let mere man heap up regulations over you? Why do you let mere man condemn you? And judge you. Why do you let mere man put the burden of the law back on you? Pastor Lisa spoke to the law of circumcision last week before we talked about the Judaic law and that it was impossible to bear. And, and Paul continues into now the worship of angels, the new moons. By the way, uh, the Jewish festivals, many of them came around the moons. And so the lunar activity was very important with the Jewish festivals. And so Paul's teaching is in direct opposition to the rules and traditions of the day. And this teaching, it would have been particularly hard, particularly for the Jewish believers. It would have been hard for them because it meant they had to now change their paradigm. It meant that they had to now change the way they saw relationship with God, the way they saw living out this faith in the day-to-day. -day. It would have been hard, and it would have significantly fought against our fallen human nature. Because how many know that our fallen human nature likes to revert back to law? It just seems to be a default of ours. We just like to revert back to it. And this is the same today for those that have fallen into the trap of, of legalistic add-ons to their faith. For as long as, as anyone could remember, the rules were kept that we might have a relationship with God. Now Jesus comes and he turns it on the head. He turns it on his head. Now that, that God is accessible to everyone through Jesus, it's relationship with God that inspires the change in the way we live our lives. He's flipped it on its head. Knowing Jesus changes everything. The journey of faith, as in the individual and unique as, as the people coming to Jesus, the journey of faith looks different for every single individual. We can't make a formula of the faith journey. We just can't. But that's what we want to do. And that's when we come and we get in trouble. That's when we come and take our own journey and where we are in our own path and we impose it on other people. You need to be like me right now. That's not the journey Jesus took you on. Why is it the journey that we're taking others on? Knowing Jesus changes everything. Now, now, I want you to notice something before we go on. And this is a small caveat. But Paul is not talking about definitive sin issues here. I want you to get that before we move on. Paul is not talking about definitive sin issues. He's not referring to the complacencies of letting sin abound in our lives. In fact, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 6, uh, verses 12 to 15, he says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Slaves to righteousness. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So Paul is, Paul is very definitive when it, when it comes to sin. But Paul also makes it clear that the journey of dealing with sin is a journey that the Spirit individually takes us on. He takes us on that journey. And sometimes as a church, we need to trust God, particularly those new to faith and coming into faith. We need to trust God that God's going to take them on a journey. And we're not going to impose behavior modification as a community of faith. That's not what we're about. We're about deepening relationships and intimacy with Jesus. That's what we're about. So Paul here in chapter 2, he's, 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 he's talking about the propensity for the human being to begin making their preferences their principles. I don't know if you remember my very first sermon here. It was a sermon called, the big idea was don't let your preferences become your principles. Because that's what we do as human beings. We let our preferences become our principles. We let our preferences become our theology. And we don't do that. We don't walk that way. We don't live that way. Paul says again, the event of the law, the event of the law of the Lord, the festivals and the feasts, they're just a type and a shadow. They just point us to Jesus. They're a type and a shadow of Jesus. So, so do we do this? Do we live this way in the church? I, I, I would say that we do. You know, we, we do it when we, we don't understand a generation in terms of clothing or values or the way they act. So, uh, we, we do this when we, when we judge somebody for the unforgivable. Can I get, this is so funny. Can I just, I want to throw this out there. The unforgivable sin of wearing their hat in church. I know I've talked about this before. You know, it came up again. I had somebody in my office, and they were just, they had their hat off. They had their hat off, and, and, and they wouldn't put it back on while they're in my office. And, they're, they, they, and, and they, they were at church way back when they were a kid over on Alberni Street and haven't been to church for a long time. But man, oh, like the hang-up of the hat was a real deal. Someone along the way, I was in a church where somebody smacked a hat, an old, 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 old saint, loving Jesus, but smacked the hat off a kid, came into church. Dear Jesus, really? Are we really doing that? By the way, in churches where we aspire to be safe places for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, encounter the love, and look more and more like him each day, that doesn't happen. Amen? But we do this. We do these things. And, 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 and literally adults coming back to faith have, and, and, I, and, and I don't even say it lightly, I don't even say it as a joke, have actual deep-seated like anxiety around coming into church community. What do I wear? What do I do? I dare not wear a hat in church. What do, I, what do I put on? Like deep-seated anxiety because they witnessed the legalism of the add-ons on faith when they were kids. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us. We do this 
when we see those who operate in giftings very different than our own. We judge. We heap up add-ons. We heap up our understanding of how that should be done. We do this when we see people trying to accomplish the mission of the gospel differently than we do. Listen, Andy Stanley said, marry the mission, not the method. Marry the mission, not the method. Methods change. But we do this when we see people doing things very differently than we would do them. And we judge and we heap up and we dismiss. That's not the church. That's not the church. In so many ways in the church, we've held up this value of uniformity. Uh, Andy and I were talking about this this week. We've held up this value of uniformity when the real value around Christian community is and should be diversity in unity. Not uniformity, diversity in unity around the main things. You know what? When we came to Powell River, it was a significant culture shock. And you all know what I'm going to say, don't you? This is one of the most homogenous places I've ever been to. We came from a church in Surrey, one of the most diverse cities in all of Canada. We came from a church that had 58, get this, 58 different nationalities represented in our congregation every Sunday. It was beautiful. It was diversity and unity. And then I still remember, I'm not even going to lie, I remember my first sermon walking up here. I remember turning to face all y'all. And this is my first thought. I'm not even lying. This is my first thought that hit me. It was like culture shock. It's so white here. It was like culture shock coming from Surrey, B.C. to here. But here's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is diversity. All tribes and nations united in Jesus. All personalities united in Jesus. All talents and gifts united in Jesus. This is the beauty of Christian community. This is to be celebrated. But so often we want it to look one way. We want it to look one way. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking like, like within ethnicity. I'm talking about the way we do things, the way we operate, the way that we... Diversity in unity is the value of Christian community. You can be a community that gathers together under the banner of Jesus, united by the spirit of truth in the mission of the gospel. And then I'm seeing that in Powell River, things are changing. I'm seeing that in our church, things are changing. And I celebrate that. I think it's going to be good for us. It's good for us, and we celebrate that. Paul goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast 
to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. There's three main things that Paul is addressing here. The first thing is asceticism. And this is a word that we don't often use, but it, here's, here's the definition of asceticism. Severe self-discipline and avoiding all forms of indulgence, usually for religious reasons. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul. He's addressing the, th- the theology. He's addressing the camp in the church of the Gnostics. The philosophy of Gnosticism that, that came into the early first century church. And if you remember, the Gnostics believed that all matter, all physical matter was evil. And so that meant our bodies were evil. So what that did, it had created two camps in Gnostic teaching. The first camp, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, was because the body is evil, because all matter is evil, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want with your body. Your soul and your spirit are separate categories. But we all know that Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches what your body does, what you allow your body to do and walk in, affects your soul, it affects your mind, it affects your spirit. It's all intertwined. We know that. Because we were made in the image of God, a triune God. We're triune beings, body, soul, and spirit. So the other extreme of Gnosticism was those that would absolutely beat their bodies into submission. Okay? I don't know if you, if, if you remember back just, just the staircase going up, right? Hands and knees, beating your body, beating this flesh down into submission. The spiritual things. I remember in school I watched, I, I don't even remember what, I don't know why we watched this. It was such a movie. Anybody watch stuff in school and you're like, how did we even watch that? Anyway, there's a part and there's a priest and he was working with uh, First Nations people. And, and at one point he takes this, he takes his cloak on and he's beating himself, right, with his branch. Just whipping himself, trying to just submit his body. I don't know why we watched that. But that's asceticism. This extreme submission of the body, of the flesh. This extreme behavior modification. Paul says, cut it out. I asked the question earlier, does the way you live your life define your relationship with Jesus? That's asceticism. Those that practice asceticism, that, that's asceticism. That is the way I live my life defines my relationship with Jesus. Rather than Jesus, relationship with Jesus defining the way we live our lives. The first is works-based, and the second is a deep understanding of the grace and love and mercy of God extended to us in Jesus. Because knowing Jesus changes everything. The second issue he addresses is the worship of angels. Now, today we may not understand this fully, the worship of angels, but in first century Christianity, they would have understood this. Because within the Hebrew tradition, it was a no-no to even utter the name of God. You wouldn't even write it down. They had placeholders 
in their transcripts that were just known to be the name of God, but they wouldn't actually write it down because the name of God was too sacred. So what happened within the Jewish culture is angels became a big thing. Angels almost became these intermediaries because you could extend to an angel. You could talk about an angel. You could use their name. And so it's almost like they, they became these intermediaries between them and God. And very quickly it got sideways where there was this worshiping of angels. And now, now you, might, you might ask, do we do, we do that today? Do, do we have an issue with that in the, in the church today? And a few years ago, I, I probably would have said no. I probably would not have spent a whole lot of time on the worship of angels in an evangelical church setting. But a few years ago, the Holy Spirit used my wife to point something out to me in my own life. When we think of angels, we think of, you know, Michael and Gabriel and these messengers from God and these great stories throughout the, the, the New Testament in particular. But we forget that the demonic, Satan was a former angel. He, he's an angelic being. His demons, his followers are angelic beings. So here's what I would do, because I grew up in a very charismatic kind of, uh, well, we're going to talk about that in a second, but uh, kind of church and environment. And, and so we, I, I had a lot, even as an adolescent, a lot of exposure to the things of the demonic, manifestations of the demonic, and, and, um, and, 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 and personal experience through some different ministry activities and so what, what would happen is I would, I would begin to tell stories. And I don't know if you do this. And if you do, I, I want to maybe just nudge you in a direction that I was nudged. I would tell these stories about demonic activity. And I would get so caught up in the details of the manifestations and this and that and the other thing. And then at the end, I would kind of throw in, and God delivered them or this happened almost as an afterthought. And one day, Lisa, Lisa came to me and she said, Lucas, every time you tell a story like that, I feel so dirty. Because you're not glorifying God, you're glorifying the activity of the demonic. And I didn't mean to do that. I wasn't trying to do that. But guess what? I was. I was. So I went on a bit of a journey, a personal journey. I, I would invite you to do the same. Read, read in the New Testament about Jesus' interaction with the demonic. Okay? Legion is an exception to the rule. But for the most part, what did Jesus do? Shut up, get out. Shut up, get out. Shut up, get out. He didn't glorify, he didn't give the time, he didn't give the, the, uh, the mic time, the story time to the demonic. No, instead he modeled, shut up, get out. And he shut it down. He shut it down. I didn't mean to. It wasn't my intention. It wasn't my heart. But you know what? After Lisa said that, I'm not going to lie. I didn't take it well at first. 
You guys, you, you, all, you all know how that goes, right? But then over time, as I was praying and thinking and reading and studying, I came to realize, yeah, you know what? I'm glorifying the wrong thing. So I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. I may reference it, but the bulk is the glory, the authority, the power of Jesus. That's what we glorify. And then the third thing is going on and on about visions, puffed up. And the Gnostics, they loved their secrets. If you remember, the, 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 they, they had these secret keys to knowing God. They had these additional things that were secret, that uh, allowed people to come into salvation, that nobody else, unless you knew the secrets, you couldn't do it. But, but they would also claim visions that gave them this additional revelation to the secrets of God and the secrets of the journey of faith. And, they, and these, of course, would be unsubstantiated. They'd be unsubstantiated in the text of Scripture, and therein lies the danger. But they loved it because it creates a type of elitism in faith. It creates a type of elitism in Christian community. That if I'm having visions, somehow I am better than my brother or sister who is not. And the danger was out of these visions became these theologies that couldn't be substantiated by the word of God. This manifests itself today. You know, we see this in the rise of cults in particular. One or two people, unsubstantiated, receiving special vision, special revelation from God, and they begin to overlay it over the biblical Christianity. That's how we get cults today. We begin to shape our theology. This is the danger in our Christian faith, is when we begin to shape our theology around visions, experience, and the moving of the Spirit. Even the moving of the Spirit. Even the moving of the Spirit that is legit. The danger is, is when we begin to shape our theology around those experiences. And here's why. Because we love formulas. We absolutely, as human beings, love formulas. We say this, one time it happened this way, this was the outcome, and now it's a part of my theology. It happened this way, this was the outcome, and now it's a part of the way I see the activity of God moving in every person's life across the board. This becomes your theology. A while ago, I was doing some research on the theology of a few particular movements. As a pastor, um, there's so much going on in the world. And with globalization and with people on YouTube and, and, and just the, the, the world is so much smaller now. And so things can be happening halfway around the world and it still affects us. It actually still molds us and moves us and changes us. And so I was doing some study on particular movements. Um, and, and, and two of the, the things I was digging into were around the interpretation of dreams in one movement. And then another movement was the theology of healing. And so I was doing some study. And one ministry had essentially standardized the teaching on dream interpretation. Okay, they had standardized the teaching on dream interpretation. And, and what, what's dangerous about this is 
This very well could have come out of a legitimate experience, a legitimate time of discerning in the spirit as someone shared a dream and God used someone to interpret that dream because God does that. That happens. But then what happened is that moment, that time got standardized. So now... Every time someone has a dream where they're flying, it means this. Every time that someone has a dream where they're trying to run away, but it's slow motion and they can't, it means you have fear in your life or something. Like, it became standardized. So what we did and what this ministry ended up doing, trying to be spiritual, and and maybe the motivation was completely innocent, the motivation was to help people and inspire people and lead them in Jesus, but what happened is they actually removed the need for the Holy Spirit to interpret. And now they have a manual. If your dream is this was happening, this is what it represents. One, two, or three. That's not the gift of discernment. That's taking experience and creating theology around experience. That can't be found in Scripture. There is no standardized interpretation of dreams in the Bible. And that's the danger. The other ministry was around the theology of healing. And so I was digging in. And as I was digging in, the same thing kind of happened. They had this, they had this sort of manual And again, it could have happened out of legitimate, and that's why I said, even legitimate moves of the Spirit, we can't create theology around the experience we have with legitimate moves of the Spirit. Because the danger is, God doesn't always do the same thing twice. We have an unlimitedly creative God. But what happened is they saw healing happen in this context. So what they would have is they'd have a manual. And the manual would say something like this. For instance, I read... If you have fibromyalgia, everybody know fiber, a very painful condition with the skin and pain and the nervous system and all that. Fibromyalgia, they correlated that instantly. Means you have a root of unforgiveness in your life. What? Show me that in the Bible. And I don't, want to be, I don't want to be too judgmental. But I, I do have a responsibility to kind of raise up some warning flags here. When we begin to take our experience of leg- even legitimate moves of the Spirit, and we shape our theology around that, that's called extra-biblical theology. In other words, it's an overlay over what we see in Scripture. You can't do that. That doesn't work. Because again, it removes the need for the spirit of truth to lead you in the discerning process. Because sometimes fibromyalgia is just fibromyalgia. Amen? We have to be careful. We have to be so careful. The danger enters when that that experience or that vision or that dream becomes standardized as our theology. Here's the kicker, though. 
It's not like we have to teach this stuff. We don't even have to teach this stuff. Sometimes the culture of the church just does it for us. Sometimes the culture of the church just does it for us. I grew up, as I said, in a very charismatic move-in environment. Um, yeah, we, we could talk if you want to talk about it later. I, I mean, we have crazy experiences, and, and a lot of it just very legitimate, very legitimate moves of the Spirit. But some of it, okay. Uh, mm, so, so, so let, me, let me just give you an example. We had a culture, and it was never said, but it was implied by the way we operated. We had a culture that said that unless you are on your backside after you get prayed for, you didn't really have an experience with God that was significant or profound. Okay? Who remembers the days of catchers? Catchers are of the devil. Can I say that? Is that okay? Now, if you were a catcher back in the day, forgive me. I'm not saying you're of the devil. I'm just saying, if God's going to put me on my backside, he's going to take care of me. And if I'm going on my backside out of emotionalism and out of a pressure to do it because everybody else is doing it, I should get hurt. But I grew up in this culture where a big part of the narrative of the way we operated was unless you were on your backside, you didn't have a profound moment with the spirit of truth, the spirit of God. And it was never verbally said, but it was implied in the way that we did things. It was implied in having catchers. We anticipated these things happening because they happen so frequently and all the time. It became so a part of the culture, it was very hard to discern what was real and what was not. And here's the thing, as a young man, as a young kid, I remember seeing people, their lives were a mess. And every week they'd be on the floor and they'd get up and they'd leave into our small town where everybody knows everything. And the trajectory of their lives wouldn't change. When you encounter the glory of God and the love of God, it does something in you. It begins to change the trajectory of your life. It inspires you to something different. And as a young man, I saw people falling all over the place all the time. But nothing changed. I'm not against people falling. By the way, I, I have had God himself knock me on my backside more often than I can even count. Legitimately moves of the Spirit. But every time I would go up to some preacher, evangelist, prophet, all of that, you know how I would stand? This is part of the way I grew up. Because of the way I grew up, this is how I'd stand. I remember in Bible college, I went up one time, and this guy was getting a little, he was getting a little pushy. I'm like, no way, little man, are you pushing me down? If God's going to do it, so be it. God, you, God, I want all of you. 
but there's no way this little man is pushing me down. So I believe, I believe God, God will put you on. If he needs to do something deep in it, he will drop you like a sack of potatoes. Sometimes we can't stand in the glory of God. That's legit. But I'm not going to create a theology that says unless you were on your backside, you didn't have an experience with the Spirit of God. So what's the remedy in all of these extremes? And, and, and this propensity, this tendency of our humanity to do this. It's found in verse 19. Paul says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says, this is what happens. These things happen when we don't hold fast, tightly, white-knuckled to the head. Who's the head? Jesus. To know Jesus changes everything. So how do you hold fast to the head? Know Jesus as revealed through the Gospels. Know Jesus as revealed through the Gospels. That's why they were written down. That's why we have eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, so that we can know Jesus through the Gospels. Know Jesus through the Gospels. And know the implications of Jesus in you through the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. That's what we got. That's it. That's what we got. We're going to have experiences. We're going to have encounters with the Almighty God. We're going to have moments where God does amazing things in and through us. We're going to have supernatural moments in our journey of faith. But we're not going to take those moments and standardize them as a theology and a formula for meeting with Jesus. We're going to always return to the Gospels, eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. We're always going to return to the apostles who wrote the understanding and the theology around what does it now mean that Jesus has saved us by his grace. That's all we got. That's our filter for all the other stuff that presents itself. You know, even our, in, our, in our Pentecostal movement, we're a part of a rich heritage. But we don't even let our heritage and our traditions take precedent over the recorded life and ministry of Jesus and the apostle teachings. We don't create theology and ways of doing church or living out of our faith-based uh, experiences Unless it's substantiated by the life of Jesus or the teachings of the apostles. Don't let me get away with that. If you see that in me, call me on it. Because I do not want to stand here and begin to overlay my opinion of faith journey, of Christianity. I don't want to stand here and overlay I will always go back 
to what does the word of God say? We don't chase the experience. We don't chase the manifested gifts of the spirit. We don't chase visions or even the prophetic. We chase after Jesus. And here's a side note. I've been doing so much study around this because God has just been tweaking something in me. In Pentecostal, and I grew up in charismatic, so it's just so a part of me, right? And sometimes just the traditions and the environments in which you grew up really shapes everything that you understand about faith. And that's why it's so important to be in the word of God because your history with the church, whether you know it or not, has informed the way you see your faith journey. That's just legit. Whether it's good or not. There were things that were said in church that I thought were in the Bible and they weren't. Have you ever had those scripture verses? And you're like citing these what you think are scripture verses? And then you find out years later they're not even in the Bible? <laughs> but in my, in my years of growing up, everything was so about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And as I've been reading the New Testament, here's what I'm coming to understand. And I, I, the Holy Spirit is, is God Almighty. But here's the dynamics of the Godhead. When Jesus was on this earth, Jesus did not bring glory to himself. What did he do? He pointed everyone to the Father. He pointed everyone to the, he even said, I won't even do anything unless the Father commissions me to do it. That was Jesus' attitude. Jesus' attitude was, I am here to glorify the Father and reveal the Father and do the bidding of my Father in heaven. And then Jesus is glorified and ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he sends his Holy Spirit. And as you begin to study the work of the Spirit in the church of Jesus, you begin to understand that the Spirit of truth does the same thing. The Spirit of truth didn't come so we could have a good time. He didn't come so we could just have exclusively great experiences. The spirit of truth came to continually, as individuals and as local communities of faith and as the global church, point us to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus that changes everything. The work of the spirit, even the gifts of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is all about the pursuit and the attention going on to Jesus. That's the operation of the Spirit in our lives and in our churches and in the global church. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Everything else is secondary and peripheral to the journey and the race and the running and the pursuit of Jesus Christ and Him glorified. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Paul concludes his preaching with this. In verse 20, 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They look good from the outside. They look really holy and really righteous. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul writes, why do you continue to submit to man-made preferences as though they were spiritual principles? And here's where we need to have grace for one another in community. We can promote self-made religion or behavior modification, but, but it won't stop the flesh. It won't, it won't, Paul's saying it won't work. It won't work long term. It won't do what you want it to do. You're not going to get the outcome you're looking for. The only thing that can stop the flesh is knowing Jesus, taking steps towards Jesus. And yes, at time, self-denial. But self-denial doesn't become a part of beating down this body. This self-denial becomes a part of pursuing relationship and removing obstacles. Because when it's all about our relationship with Jesus, we will begin to do anything it takes to get closer to him. When we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, we will get desperate about removing every obstacle we can to be in the presence of God. Knowing Jesus changes everything. I asked you the question earlier. As the worship team comes. And I ask this as a, as a legitimate exercise. As a legitimate exercise. Begin to meditate on this question. Does the way you live your life define your relationship with Jesus? Or does your relationship with Jesus define the way you live your life? Does the way you live your life define your relationship with Jesus? Or does relationship with Jesus begin to change you from the inside out? Begin to mold you and refine you and change you? Let's meditate on this question while the worship team just leads us in a time of reflection and worship. Let's take this self-inventory. And just ask, Holy Spirit, would you search us? Would you know us? And Lord God, we understand that sin is sin. We understand that. Would you deal with our sin? Would you deal with our brokenness? But we also understand, Lord God, that we so often have overlaid so many things to this faith journey that maybe belong there for a season, but they don't anymore. Or maybe we had an experience and we created a formula out of it. Maybe we had a vision and we pursued that vision and we haven't pursued you. 
Lord, would you convince us that pursuing you will lead us into the things and the ways and the, and the truth. Pursuing you will lead us into those environments in which we are called to be in. That pursuing you will change our families. Lord, we thank you that you do give visions. That you do birth dreams within us. We thank you, Lord God, that you do work by your spirit. That your Holy Spirit gives us discernment in circumstances. That better informs the way that we pray and the way that we take authority. We thank you, Lord, that you have in Jesus given us authority over the enemy of our soul. But forgive us, Lord God, for creating our theology around those experiences. Teach us, Spirit of truth, to return to the Word of God. That we might truly be a community that is diverse, but is united around the main things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.